Good morning. How are you guys doing? It is good to see you guys. I have missed you the last couple of weeks, so I am glad to be here. Big time thanks to Pastor Dave for doing such a great job filling in. Don't clap because he's right there. He gets a big head. You don't want that. But uh, thanks, Dave. Great job, man. Um, hey, a uh, couple things before I get started. How many of you brought something here yesterday to help stuff the truck for Union Rescue Mission? Yeah, great job. Um, if you weren't here yesterday, you should know that we've been sort of doing this thing for the last few weeks, gathering up stuff that we want to donate. And uh, we had a, a, tr a huge truck from Union Rescue Mission here on Saturday, and we, we packed every nook and cranny of that truck from floor to ceiling all the way with great stuff that is going to get homeless people off the street. It is going to introduce the Lord to uh, people who are addicted. The guy who was the truck driver who helped us pack everything in and stuff like that, he's a pastor who pastors a church in Skid Row, and he showed me a picture on his phone of himself, the other pastor, and the worship pastor at his church. And he said all three of them came through Union Rescue Mission's program, got saved, got sober, got clean. Yeah, it's incredible. And so everything, you know, thousands of dollars worth of stuff got donated through the Grace Fellowship family this weekend, and it's going to go to change people's lives. So let's be praying for that as we, uh, as they sort of sort through all that stuff and make use of it. Um, I want to tell you, when I was growing up as a kid, my mother was addicted to soap operas. <laughs> so anybody else have soap operas in their house growing up? Yeah. Okay. So so my mom watched whatever was on NBC, three or four shows back to back in the afternoon every day. But the one that she absolutely positively would not miss, the one that could get you spanked for talking during, was Days of Our Lives. <laughs> so my mom told me that she, she watched the very first episode of Days of Our Lives and then virtually every episode of that till the day she died, it was in her hospital room the day that she died. Like, this was her show. And so, you know, I will honestly tell you that I never took an interest in this, but it was on all the time. So I would catch 15 minutes of it here and 10 minutes of it there throughout my childhood, right? And up through my teenage years. And then when I was like a, a grown man in my 30s and 40s, I would go and take lunch to my mom or something, go visit my mom. And there it would be, man, noon. It was on days of our lives that she would be like, don't talk to me, don't talk to me. We'll talk after this, right? And I would say, what... That guy, didn't that guy die like 15 years ago? And she'd be like, yeah, but he came back. He might be an evil twin. We're not sure. We're not sure now. Don't talk anymore, you know? And I'm like, wow. And in these shows, like, talk about suspension of disbelief. You have, always you have some twins, some evil twin. The twins hate each other. You have... Uh, guys who are married to two women at once. You have uh, brothers who turn on each other. You have a guy who's sleeping with his wife's best friend. You, oh, wait a second. This is Genesis. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, how many of you, after we're now 20 weeks into just this section of Genesis where we're looking at 
the, the journey of faith, the story of Abraham and his family. How many of you feel like you've been watching a soap opera during this whole thing? This is as crazy as it gets. These people are seriously dysfunctional, right? And why do people watch soap operas? To feel better about themselves, right? <laughs> so that's why I decided to preach this stuff so you would all feel better about yourselves. That's my goal. Um, but, you know, the Bible is full of this kind of stuff. Um, and guess what? It's going to get even weirder today. Uh, I've been gone the last two weeks. Pastor Dave was preaching, and he called me and said, you have to come back next week because he read chapter 38, and he said, there's no way I'm preaching on that. <laughs> Here I am. So here's what I'm going to tell you. If, if any of you have been reading ahead, you're like, oh, I can't wait to hear what he has to say about this chapter. If you haven't been reading, uh, uh, reading ahead, let me just give you some uh, information that you need. First of all, especially if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible and all this kind of stuff is new to you, here's something you need to know. Uh, contrary to popular belief, the Bible is an R-rated book. Okay, it is an R-rated book, and it is a book for adults. Now, granted, we have lessons for children from the Bible, but we don't share all the lessons with the children, right? Not everything in the Bible is uh, suitable for children. It's a book that is written to adults. And one of the things that draws me to God's word is the fact that it is absolutely real. They don't hide the shameful stuff. They tell you the stories of real people. And all the real people that I know have issues, right? Don't real people have issues? We have stress in our marriages. We have conflict in our relationships. We have addictions. We have sin in our lives. We have problems. We have all kinds of issues. I don't need to read some sugar-coated book that makes it look like everybody's perfect when I know that I'm not perfect and probably neither are you. Someone say amen, amen. quick. Okay. So we're, we're dealing with an R-rated book, and we are dealing with an R-rated chapter today, so just so that you're aware. Um, when you thought, like last week, if you are here last week, we started the story of Joseph, which is a familiar story. A lot of you know the story of Joseph. It's one of the coolest stories in the whole Bible, and I love the fact that we get to end Genesis with the story of Joseph. So we start a new series next week called Live in the Dream that is gonna be dealing with Joseph's story and what God did amazingly through his life. And it looked like we were starting that last week. We got the story of Joseph and he got thrown in the pit and he got sold into slavery. We're like, all right, we're on to Joseph. And just to mess with us, God prompts Moses to tell one more story that isn't about Joseph, it's about Judah, Joseph's older brother. And, and um, so, Here's what you need to know about Judah even before we dig in and start to read. We're going to be in Genesis 38, by the way, if you haven't turned there already. Genesis chapter 38. Here's what you need to know about Judah. You ready? Judah is a dirtbag. That's what you need to know. Judah is an absolute dirtbag. And uh, we've already seen this, right? Judah was a part of that whole um, strat strategic murderous attack on the people of Shechem, right? Wipes out a whole village of people taking revenge. 
Judah was the ringleader in the attack on Joseph where he ended up in a pit and finally sold into slavery. That was Judah. Judah was the guy who took the tunic uh, and soaked it in animal blood and took it to his father and said, hey, this looks like Joseph's robe. Have you, do you think this is Joseph's robe? And broke his father's heart, telling him a lie that his son had been eaten by wild animals. That's our friend Judah the dirtbag, okay? Chapter 38, verse 1. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. That is to say, he had a buddy in the land of Canaan, this guy Hira, who is a pagan, and he goes to this Adulamite uh, town, and he starts to hang out, and he kind of puts down roots there with his friend Hira. Verse 2, Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Now, I know that sounds rather brief. Uh, that sounds uh, rather uh, harsh, like he must have grabbed her and raped her. That's not what happened. He actually married her, and we're going to see that as it goes on. But the bottom line is, he's telling the story real fast. So Judah finds this wife of the Canaanite women, and uh, he takes her, goes into her. Verse 3, so she conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Okay, so this is not so bad. It looks like Judah is starting to settle down. It looks like Judah is going to raise a family. He's married a woman. He's had three sons. It looks like everything is going to be going just fine for Judah as he starts his family. But just like Pastor Dave has been telling us the last few weeks, this is a messed up family, right? You know, Pastor Dave's been talking about how uh, things get passed down from generation to generation, and we keep seeing these stories repeated in Genesis as the generations go on. Well, we're going to get introduced to a new generation here, these sons of Judah, and guess what? They're just as messed up as their dad. Um, they had, these, these sons of Judah had received these wonderful traits from their dad. And this is the first look we're going to get at this new generation, and we find out they're pretty much just like their father. Verse 6, now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Now his kids are grown, okay? He took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. We don't get any explanation except he was evil. How evil do you have to be that God says, you know what? I can't risk having you on this planet anymore. God killed him, right? So he's so evil, this son of Judah, that God kills him. And you say, wait a minute, does God kill people? That doesn't sound very God-like. And as much as I would love to say no, the answer is actually yes. In fact, you find it all throughout the scripture. There are various times when God kills whole groups of people. There are other times, Old and New Testament, where God will kill someone because of their pattern of sin and their unwillingness to repent. And so in order to protect the rest of us from those people, God will kill people because of their wickedness sometimes. Does he do it very often? No, or we wouldn't be here, amen? <laughs> right? I'm very thankful for that. 
but God does sometimes kill people as a judgment for their sin. I told you, this is an R-rated story. This is not a bedtime story for the children, okay? So, you know, that's why they're in there. Um, And if you think that this is uncomfortable, now it's about to get really uncomfortable. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, that's the second son now, right? The first son is dead and has, has got a wife, but now he's dead, so she's a widow. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, if you're thinking, is that what it sounds like? The answer is yes, it's exactly what it sounds like, right? Uh, this, is, this is something called Leverite marriage. And this was practiced all throughout the ancient Near East. It's even... Um, It's even outlined in the book of Deuteronomy as part of the Mosaic law for the nation of Israel. Here's how it worked. Because in those days, property rights were all related to inheritance. So you had to have a a firstborn male heir to pass your inheritance down to so that your uh, legacy could continue as a person. Now, I know this is weird. I know this is very different than our culture and our society today. But in that time and in that place, in all of the ancient Near East, this is what was practiced. Women had no rights, none. So the only hope that a woman had in this culture was to be connected to a man. She was connected to her father until she was connected to a husband. And then when she was connected to a husband, if her husband died, she was left in the cold. There was nothing she could do. No one would want to marry her because she's no longer a virgin. Many of them would have to make their living in prostitution. This is why they had those dowries where women would receive these uh, dowry necklaces full of valuable uh, coins and jewels so that if their husband died, they would have a way to carry on and they wouldn't find themselves in that situation. And in order for the line to carry on, you needed a male heir. And so the brother of the dead husband had the responsibility of, of assisting in the conception of a child for his brother. So if he would get that woman pregnant then she would have the child and it would be legally her husband's son and he would be the heir. So that's exactly what's happening here, okay? So he gives this woman to his second son, says, hey, you have to raise up um, heirs for them. Now, here's what you have to understand. If you're owning the second son, you are not digging this. I know at first, guys, you're like, hey, right? But give me a second. Here's the deal. By that guy having an heir, you just became the firstborn. You just became the guy who's going to get the full inheritance. But by your brother having an heir, then that inheritance goes to him, his son, right? So, so this is a tough situation for Onan to be put in, okay? Now, verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. (laughs) Now look, this is why Dave didn't want to preach this sermon, okay? (laughs) Those two verses right there. 
Um, so let me do the best that I can with this, right? Um, first of all, it says that he wasted his seed. If you don't know what that means, I'm going to tell you that it's a, a farming metaphor and it has to do with seed that got thrown in the wrong part of the ground. And if you still don't understand, ask your parents, okay? <laughs> That's what I'm going to tell you about that. <laughs> But what's interesting, this, he, he protects his own interests. He goes ahead and has sex with this woman, but wastes his seed and so that she will not conceive. And, and then it says that God killed him too. And you think, okay, like I'm really starting to not like this God. Like this is, this is rough. This is why, I know Pastor Dave emphasized this last week, I'm always emphasizing it. We have to judge our circumstances in light of who God is, not judging God in light of our circumstances, right? We look at this and we go, man, God is bad. But God is not bad, right? We know that God is good. We know that God is holy. We know that God is righteous. We know that God is loving. We know that God is all-knowing. We know that God is all-powerful. So what that tells me is, if God decided that these men need to be put to death, God was right. Now, I don't know the reasons. I, I, I doubt it was this one sin, because if, if you got put to death for one sin once again, where would we be, right? So I don't know what the situation was. I don't know what the details. God didn't feel that we needed to know, but he did feel that we needed to know who he is. He is good. He is righteous. He is just. So when he judges, it is right. And, and this God of grace and mercy is also a God of wrath, and he has every right to judge sin, okay? So this guy gets put to death. Now, verse 11 uh, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So evidently Sheila is still a teenager at this point, And he says, listen, I gave this wife to my firstborn son and he died. My secondborn son just slept with her and he died. This lady is a black widow. I don't need to give my third son to this woman, right? So he says, here's what I want you to do. I don't even want you to stay here. I want you to go to your father's house, go back and live with him. So she has to go back now as a, as a double widow. She has to go back to her father's house and move back into her father's house and bear the shame of this with her people and, and um, you know, carry this burden herself. So her world is crumbling. Remember, just a, just a few verses ago, she was shopping for wedding dresses. This was the highlight of her life, and then it got worse, and then it got worse, and then it got worse, and her life is crumbling now. Her only hope here is that Judah will make good on his word, and that in a couple of years, he'll call and bring her back, and marry her to the youngest son. That's her only hope. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. 
And uh, the time of mourning was ended. When the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to the sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Now, let me help you understand this. Remember, I told you a few chapters ago that uh, sheep shearing time was a huge festival? Whenever there was time for the shearing of the sheep in this, uh, you know, um, shepherding community, what they did was they took the flocks out to pasture and all of the men of the communities went to this event. The women and children stayed at home, okay? So picture, if you want to picture what this is like, picture a bachelor party in Vegas. That's what this is, okay? So just understand, there's no wives, there's no children. It is just a bunch of guys. They get off into the country and they have this massive party. And when they would do that, the communities, into the communities surrounding where the sheep were pasturing, they would actually bring in prostitutes from other communities because this was the Super Bowl, okay? That's how it is done here. Every city that gets a Super Bowl, there are plans made. Pimps bring prostitutes into the city. That's where all the money is going to get made because men go on these trips without their wives, right? And um, whenever there's a, a, um, uh, like a, a political um, convention, same thing happens, right? Just prostitutes all throughout the city. That's what would happen during the time of sheep shearing. There was a bumper sticker on their wagons that said, what happens at sheep shearing stays at sheep shearing. Okay? That's how this worked. So I want you to get that picture, okay? Verse 13. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. Now there's a pickup line, huh? What a charmer. Um, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is on your hand, uh, in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. I know this is getting weirder, right? But I told you, this is a soap opera. And some of you are wondering, I know when you're, you're like, okay, wait a second, this is his daughter-in-law and he picks her up on the side of the road. How does he not recognize her? I'm not sure, but I can give you some thoughts. Number one, when men get their mind in a certain place, they don't pay attention to anything else. Number two, he probably barely knew her. He had probably not spent any time with her because in that culture, men and women were separated almost all of the time. And when they weren't separated, women always had their faces covered. Okay? So he may have never even seen the face of his own daughter-in-law. 
Um, probably there was some drinking involved. She's wearing a veil, right? There's a lot of ways this can happen. At any rate, now she's pregnant. So this is not going to go away. And in our soap opera, it is Friday afternoon, and in the last scene of the soap opera, on Friday, she's holding an EPT stick, and it says positive. And, and as the music comes in, they, they focus on her face, and the, and the pregnancy test blurs out, and you see her face, and there is a gleam in her eye. She has an idea. And then it goes to black, and you have to wait till Monday to find out what happens. Okay? But here, we don't have to wait till Monday. We can just read the next verse. This is so great. Verse 20. Okay? When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Uh, he asked the men of her place, uh, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anaim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there's been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep him. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So at least he tried to pay her off, right? He sends the goats because... What she has is, frankly, way more valuable than a goat. So he sends the goat to get his stuff back, right? And she's nowhere to be found. So he decides, this is humiliating. I am not going to go asking around and telling my story and explaining to everybody why I need to find this girl. So let her keep my stuff. Hopefully, we'll never hear from her again because this is getting embarrassing. Well, the embarrassment is just beginning, Verse 24. Uh, where'd I go? Verse 24, next page, sorry. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. He's such a good guy. By the way, before we go on too much, let me just take a little side note. This is one of the problems with hypocrisy. A guilty conscience tends to judge everyone more harshly, right? When I know that there's some stuff wrong in my life, I tend to look for somebody else got something wrong in their life and I want to point the finger at them. I want to make that person feel worse so that I could feel better about myself. It's the whole idea of elevating myself by tearing down somebody else. This is why hypocrisy is such a disgusting thing. It's why so many people have said no to God and you ask them why and they go, it's because all the hypocrites who follow God, people are just disgusted with hypocrisy. And one of the reasons we're also disgusted with hypocrisy, we're all hypocrites, Right? And so we see this, we feel guilty, and we tend to judge other people more harshly. His response, as soon as he finds out she's pregnant, which, you know, put two and two together, she's a widow, she's not supposed to be sleeping with anybody, all of a sudden she's pregnant. Obviously, she's been messing around with somebody, 
and that brings shame to his family name. So he is embarrassed. How dare she embarrass me? So he says, go to her father's house, open the door, pull her out, bring her into the street, and light her on fire. Let her burn to death. Which, by the way, this happens today in the Middle East. This is not an unusual thing. It is not uncommon in certain cultures for a woman who, is, who has been accused of adultery, even sometimes a woman who has been raped, to be burned in the streets. It's called honor killing. Sounds honorable, doesn't it? And so that's what he wants to do. Now, let's remember... The law of Moses doesn't even exist yet. This is still Genesis. We haven't even met Moses. The law of Moses did not exist at this time, right? So when you, when you move on and you read Deuteronomy, you find that there are uh, harsh laws in the book of Deuteronomy for the nation of Israel about sexual purity, and people can actually be stoned if they are convicted by the elders in the community of adultery. This is not that. There are no elders here. There is no trial here. There is no stoning here. This is light her on fire because she embarrassed me. That's what this is. Judah's mad because he thinks she's brought shame to the family. It's just Judah's anger and humiliation that is driving this whole thing. Little does he know that his humiliation is about to increase, right? Verse 25. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I just made a big scene about how she should be burned in the streets. And now I realize it's been about three months. Oh my goodness, she's pregnant with my child, right? I, like seriously, could you come up with a soap opera that would be more crazy than this? So um, he realizes what's going on. Now, I want to stop us here for a second too because I, I want to caution all of us. We've already established Judah was a dirtbag, right? I'm not going to pretend he wasn't. Judah's a dirtbag. But we all have skeletons in our closets. We have all done some things of which we are ashamed or at least ought to be ashamed. And some of us probably know what it is to have a secret that you hope nobody ever finds out because you don't want to face the humiliation or the consequences that come with a secret like that. So let's not fall into this hypocritical trap that Judah fell into. We already said Judah's a dirtbag, but let's admit to ourselves, we all have a little bit of dirtbag in us. So I think that brings us to a question. When, when the jig is up and when you suddenly are faced with your own sin, 
And at this point, he's still the only one who knows what, what he's done, him and her, right? And, and he's now convicted. It, it's just held right in front of his face. What do you do when you come under that kind of conviction from God? What do you do? How should we behave when we're convicted by our own sinfulness? Because listen, we've all, we've all been in situations where we have been the victim of someone else's sinfulness, right? We all have. Because just by living in this world with broken people, we're going to deal with people who are going to hurt us. So, so all of us, in one way or another, one time or another, many times in our lives, have been a victim. Our pain was caused by somebody else, right? That happens sometimes. And we have to figure out how to deal with that through forgiveness and, and healing and all that. But there are other times when my mess was made by me right? Somebody say amen. Uh, you're with me, right? Sometimes my mess was made by me. What do I do when I realize I have made a mess of my life through my own sin? It's my fault. I point the finger and I look in the mirror and there's a finger pointing right back at me. What do I do then? Believe it or not, we get a pretty decent example from our old friend Judah, the dirtbag. Look at verse 26. Judah recognized them, those things that she brought, and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not have relations with her again. I think it's been well established that Judah is a grade A jerk, but his life is an example of one thing. It's not too late to repent. After all this time and all that he has done, finally, somehow, the Lord has gotten to his heart when he sees these things and he realizes how not only has he sinned, but he judged her. God gets through to him and he stops lying and he stops pretending and he stops making excuses and instead he goes, I'm the problem. Guys, for some of us, we're never going to get our lives on a healthy path until the day we look in the mirror and say, I am the problem. And when we do that, it opens us up now to have something done about the problem. And so I love this because it's this picture of repentance. He could have easily said, she's a liar. And, and they would have believed him, right? Right? There's no paternity test. There's no Maury Povich show to put this out, right? We don't, we're never going to get a paternity test. All he had to say was, that's ridiculous. She's a liar. Or he could have said, okay, it's my kid, but she tricked me, which she kind of did, right? Be really easy to make excuses, point fingers, but he doesn't do that here. And I love, and it, it's worded strangely. I feel like there's a whole story that isn't told and we're just getting this little brief summary. But I love the fact that it says, and he never had relations with her again, which I think will die, I hope not, right? Except that would not have been uncommon in that culture. If he took her back into his home, that's probably exactly what would have happened with her. And it makes a point of saying he never had relations with her again. 
Now, here's the thing about repentance. We talk about this word, it's, it's you know, a stained glass word that only gets used in church, and a lot of us don't even really know what it means. So let me help you to get a sense of what it means. When we talk about repenting, what we're saying is, I am walking westward, and I stop, change my mind, and turn around, and begin to walk eastward. That's repentance. Repentance is I change my mind and that leads to a change in my actions. It's not just saying, okay, I admit it. It's not just praying and saying, dear Lord, forgive me. Repentance is that I change my mind and therefore change my direction. That's what he did. He stopped taking advantage of this woman and he began to treat her with dignity. And I think it's important that he points that out because some of us need to follow his example and admit to God and ourselves that our issues are a result of our sin. And some of us need to stop walking the direction we've been walking and turn around and go the other direction. Because, you know, it doesn't take a genius. We all know this, that uh, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting, right? That's just how it works. Some of us need to follow this example. Look at verse 27, and we'll wrap this up. It came about at the time that she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. More twins, just what we need in this story, more twins. There were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. <laughs> so we got another set of twins and another controversy about who's the firstborn, right? So we get that part of the story. Now, now we're done. That's the end of the story. These, these twins are born, and they're not going to talk about it anymore. We're not going to get it, and then here's what happened when they grew up. No, we don't get any of that. So the end of the story, we're going to go on and talk about Joseph. And, and you think to yourself, gee, I'm glad I came to church today, <laughs> right? Wow, what is this? What is this story doing in here? Why would God even put such a bizarre, offensive, ridiculous story in the scripture? Let me give you a couple thoughts I have on that. Number one, I think that Judah's sinfulness stands as a stark contrast to Joseph's righteousness, which we're going to see in the next several chapters, and we're going to see the transition that God makes in establishing the people of God. The second thing is, you've got to remember who the original audience of this was. Moses wrote this book, the book of Genesis, for the children of Israel as they were entering the promised land. After the 400 years in Egypt, after the time of the Exodus, they're about to enter the promised land and he wants them to know where they came from. Why? Because they had been in Canaan before. Here they are in Canaan and what happened in Canaan? The Canaanites rubbed off on them instead of them rubbing off on the Canaanites. And Moses wants to make that clear. You know, I know you guys just got out of Egypt after 400 years of captivity. I want you to know why you ended up there. Because your forefathers weren't ready for the promised land. That's why. So get ready for the promised land. And the third thing, and I think this is the most important, 
I think this story is here to help us get a picture of God's amazing grace. You say, really, where's God's grace in this? Okay, we have Judah, the dirtbag. We have Tamar, the Gentile woman. And we have their offspring, which was incestuous. And that's Perez and Zerah. All of them end up being pictures of God's grace in the Bible. When Jesus, this is so amazing about Jesus, this blows my mind. Jesus is the only human being who ever got to choose his family, right? The rest of us, how many times have you thought, I'm stuck with this, <laughs> right? When Jesus chose his family. He chose his lineage. He chose his parents. He chose all of that. Jesus, the one who chose his lineage, chose to be Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the great, 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 great grandson of Judah the dirtbag. Jesus the righteous came from Judah the scumbag. This is so important. You guys, Judah was still used of God. Judah was still honored by God. Judah was still blessed by God. After all of his sin, he comes to this place of repentance and God makes him great. It's amazing. It's astonishing. It blows my mind. Although I look at it and go, well, what did he have to choose from? He had to pick one of those brothers. <laughs> None of them are so impressive. But, but I just blows my mind that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then, by the way, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you super fast. Matthew, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It gives us the genealogy of Jesus. Listen to this now. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. The other brothers don't get a mention, just Judah. Judah's the star. Now, now, who comes from Judah? Judah was the father of who? Perez and Zerah, the two twins. And then it goes on. He says he was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. <laughs> She's, she gets thrown in. This Gentile woman, this, this victim of sexual abuse, she, too, is honored as a forefather of Jesus. It's unbelievable. He could have chosen any of those sons to, to use in this. The, the, this um, genealogy, the genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament, there's two of them. And, and in both cases, they, they just sort of skip around. They don't hit everybody. I mean, there's thousands of people, right? It's not like if you go get your 23andMe done, right? He just, it's just some names, the names are the ones that God wants to honor. <sighs> Judah, Tamar, Perez, and Zerah. Pictures of the grace of God. See, these guys are chosen for the genealogy. Why? Because they're so impressive? No, because they're not. And, and you and I can be chosen children of God. Why? Because we're so impressive? Because <laughs> we're so righteous? 
because we're so upright, because we've done so many good things? No, because we're not. That's how grace works. Jesus, in his amazing grace, sets his face, the scripture says, like flint toward the cross of Calvary and goes straight to it and will not be dissuaded. And he goes to the cross and no one takes his life, but he lays it down. For who? For us, the dirtbags. Doesn't that blow your mind? What a God we serve. What an amazing picture. You know why? Why does he do that? Because the scripture tells us Jesus always chooses to be associated with the lowly. He's the one who humbled himself and became one of us. He endured the cross despising the shame. Why? Because we didn't deserve it. Now you might be sitting here today and thinking that you could never deserve to be called a friend of Jesus, let alone a child of God. We sang that song earlier, I am a child of God. Like, not not everyone can say that truthfully. There's a sense in which we're all children of God because every human being is made in the image of God. But when the scripture talks about being a child of God, it's talking about having a saving relationship with God by grace through Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus died on the cross that you and I might have life. It means God sees me, knows I'm a dirtbag, and says, I'm going to save him. And he chooses me, and he sets me free by grace. And because of that incredible, amazing grace and compassion, God reaches out to us. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows that we're no more deserving of his grace than Judah the dirtbag. But he never let that stop him. He went to the cross for us. And so I said it before, but let me just repeat it because it's so important. It is not too late to repent. We need to understand this. So if repentance means that I'm walking one way and I stop and change my mind and turn my direction and go the other way, what does that look like in regards to Jesus? Let me just, let me just lay it out for you. What it means is, first of all, you stop pointing figures, stop making excuses, stop looking the other way, and you admit to yourself and to God that your sin is your problem. Secondly, you admit that you can't solve your own problem. There's nothing I can do to set myself free from the bondage of sin. I have to be set free by the grace of Jesus. And his work on the cross is what sets me free. And so I accept the free gift of his offering of himself to pay the price for my sin and I let him pay the price so that I can have new life in him. And I submit my life to him. I believe, I confess, I submit my life to him and I repent. I begin to walk toward him instead of away from him. I begin to walk with him instead of apart from him. And my life begins to change, not because I changed it, but because the King of kings and Lord of lords lives in my heart now. And he's given me new life. See, Jesus came to set us free. And so the question before us is, what what are you waiting for? (laughs) You know, what's holding you back? Is it shame? 
Because the scripture says Jesus came not only to pay for our sin, but to remove our shame. It's not too late to repent. But someday it will be. Jesus is waiting for you with outstretched arms, nail-pierced hands. And because of God's amazing grace, there is always a place for a Judah. There is always a place for a Tamar. The question is, will you accept that gift? Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, as we think about this picture of a broken man who couldn't save himself, but who you showed grace to, a a man you chose to favor in spite of what he deserved, boy, that hits close to home, Lord. And I just want to thank you that in spite of what I deserve, you have given me grace. And because of that, I, I really do have a saving relationship with you and my life has changed because of you and keeps changing. God, I know that that's true for so many of us in this room, but if there's someone here, God, for whom that is not yet true, they haven't yet submitted their life to you, accepted your gift and begun to follow you, I pray you would do that transaction in their heart right now. I pray that that someone would stop resisting you and say yes to you. I pray that someone would stop making excuses and say yes to you. I pray that someone would stop blaming you and say yes to you. God, set us free. Set us free to the life you created us to live, that abundant life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.